I'm Scott. And I'm Jason. Welcome to Skipped on Shuffle, a podcast where we delve into an overlooked song by a popular artist. Today we're going to be talking about The Verve and their song Valium Skies from their 2008 album, Fourth. Seems like the whole world is loosened. How do you stop yourself from giving in? Seems like the whole world is frying. Those of our listeners who live in the United States are probably not super excited about this episode because they think to themselves that the Verve only has one song that they've ever done. <laughs> Which, I, I, I like to think of them more as a one album wonder. <laughs> at, at the, I mean, at least that's how I came into them. And I'm referring, of course, to Urban Hymns. And you're referring to Bittersweet Symphony, which probably everyone on the planet has heard. Which, which is good news because it's one of the best songs like ever written that is as, true, yeah. as, as, far as, as far as most people are concerned. Uh, but yeah, no, it, it's, it's interesting to me because Bittersweet Symphony doesn't really represent the band at all. Like, I mean, it's, it's an amazing, amazing song, but it doesn't sound much at all like anything that they've ever done. So yeah, anything on that same record it doesn't sound like and yeah. certainly not any of the other stuff if you pick up any of the other albums, you would probably be surprised and wonder, is this even the same band or the same people? I mean, you get a hint of it, I think, a couple times on Urban Hymns, and I'm referring to the kind of trippy, psychedelic stuff that's on there that I feel like makes it harder or more, definitely a little more difficult to get into the band. Right. I, I feel like it's kind of similar to uh, a Blur and their song, Song 2, oh, which is a yeah, huge, yeah. huge, famous song, which sounds nothing like Blur. So if you, you know, if, if, if that's somebody's first exposure to, to Blur, and, if, and, and likewise, if your first exposure to The Verve is Bittersweet Symphony, you're probably going to be disappointed by the rest of their catalog because it doesn't sound anything like that. But uh, for me, and we're going to get into this later, like I first got into them before Bittersweet Symph- Symphony came out, and I was like, oh, like, you know, Bittersweet Symphony to me was like a progression to, you know, from something else. But for a lot of people, they were like, oh, yeah, this is this is where I began and this is where I end. So. Uh, so, yeah, I'm really hoping that a lot of people listening to this who maybe only think of the Verve for one song might come away with this episode with a new song that they like by the band and hopefully the willingness to go forward and, and listen to some other stuff that they've done because they have an amazing, amazing catalog. Right. The main four members of The Verve are Richard Ashcroft on vocals and guitars, Nick McCabe on guitar, Simon Jones on bass, and Peter Salisbury on drums. All four of the musicians grew up in the area around the city of Manchester in England. None of the band members come from wealthy families. In fact, guitarist Nick McCabe's father was a bus driver and Richard Ashcroft's mom was a hairdresser. These humble beginnings would help formulate the band's attitude towards music as well as Ashcroft's lyrics. In college, Ashcroft met McCabe through a mutual friend. The two decided to form a band, and Ashcroft pulled in Simon Jones and Peter Salisbury as they had all gone to high school together. 
The four musicians played their first show together at a friend's 18th birthday party on August 15th, 1990. At this point, none of the band members were over the age of 20. The band settled on the name Verve. Note how it's not the Verve, but just Verve. This will be important later. By 1991, after only playing together for about a year, Verve signed with Hut Records, a relatively small English label. The band recorded a few singles and eventually released its first major collection of songs in 1992, which is an EP simply titled Verve. The first single from this EP was called She's a Superstar, and it showcases the psychedelic and lush sound of the band's early days. That single and a few others were incredibly successful from a critical standpoint, with McCabe's guitar sound in particular drawing significant praise. She's a Superstar didn't tear up the charts, though, peaking just at number 75 on the UK singles list. With the band building buzz for themselves, Verve entered the studio to record their debut record, 1993's A Storm in Heaven. Verve's recording methods at this time were unorthodox, to say the least. Instead of coming into the studio with a collection of songs that need to be recorded and polished, they came in with nothing. They simply took a lot of drugs and had extended jam sessions for hours on end. They then sobered up, played back the tapes, and then pieced together the best bits into a cohesive structure. That methodology resulted in the first single from A Storm in Heaven, which is called Blue. As with the band's first EP, A Storm in Heaven did well critically, but wasn't a runaway success commercially. The band toured extensively, though, including high-profile gigs with the Smashing Pumpkins and a then-unknown band from England called Oasis. In 1994, the band released its first compilation, which is an interesting move considering they only had one album. (laughs) The compilation is called No Come Down, an obvious drug reference, and featured singles, b-sides, outtakes, and live tracks. No Come Down is notable because it's the first time the band used the name The Verve rather than just Verve. This was due to the prominent jazz label Verve Records taking dispute with the band's original name. Eventually, an agreement was made that the band could use The Verve. However, the band members would regularly refer to themselves as just Verve for their entire career. This is the first representation of a legal struggle with the band, which we're going to get into later. There's a lot oh, more yeah. <laughs> there's a lot more to come. <laughs> While on tour in America promoting A Storm in Heaven and No Come Down, things were getting problematic for the band. Ashcroft was drinking heavily enough to be temporarily hospitalized, and drummer Peter Salisbury had a bad trip in a hotel room and ended up destroying it. 
which is a classic. You, you know, that's yeah, that's that's, that's just rock and roll. <laughs> Are you a rock band if you don't destroy a hotel room at some point? <laughs> you need you need credibility. <laughs> this chaos carried over into the recording of the band's second record, 1995's A Northern Soul. The band departed from their original sound and focused on writing more straightforward alternative rock songs. You can hear that immediately on the album's first single, This Is Music. Northern Soul reached the top 20 on the UK charts, but just three months later, Ashcroft broke up the band. Ashcroft admitted he wanted to break up the band earlier than that, but his love for the music kept him in longer than it should have. However, just a few weeks after the breakup, Ashcroft reunited with bass player Simon Jones and drummer Peter Salisbury. Ashcroft's intention was to create a solo album with the Verve's rhythm section and without guitarist Nick McCabe, whom Ashcroft fought with constantly. The band hired Simon Tong, another high school classmate of Ashcroft's, for the guitarist role. The group spent most of 1996 writing and recording songs, with Ashcroft taking the reins as the band's leader and writing most of the material himself. Ultimately, though, Ashcroft realized that without McCabe, the music lacked a certain something, so he eventually invited McCabe to join. McCabe accepted, and Ashcroft abandoned his solo plans. Thus, the Verve had reassembled, but now with a fifth member in Simon Tong. By the end of the summer in 1997, The Verve had finished work on its third album, titled Urban Hymns. For the first time ever, The Verve experienced unbridled success with this album, based on the hit single and album opener, Bittersweet Symphony. Bittersweet Symphony took the band to new heights, becoming their highest charting single globally. It even nearly broke into the top 10 in the United States, where the band had had very little success thus far. The album Urban Hymns was a drastic departure for the band's sound, though. Since it started out as an Ashcroft solo album, many of the songs feature acoustic guitar and have more of a singer-songwriter vibe. However, despite these sweeping changes, the band's hardcore fans and the newcomers to The Verve embraced the album, helping it spawn multiple global hits, including The Drugs Don't Work, Sonnet, and one of my absolute favorite songs from The Verve, Lucky Man. But how many corners do I have to turn? How many times do I have to learn? All the love I have is in my mind. But I'm a With 
Urban Hymns became one of the best-selling albums of the year and sweeped up several awards and nominations. The concert venues the band played also grew exponentially. However, fighting between Ashcroft and McCabe continued with the two eventually getting into a fist fight backstage before a concert. McCabe ended up leaving the group in the middle of the tour, forcing the Verve to hire a session guitarist to fill in. However, and this is hilarious, no one could figure out how to replicate McCabe's playing, so the band was forced to use a pre-recorded backing track of his parts for some of the songs during live shows. Folks, that's how you know you're an unbelievably unique guitarist. That's how, that's how you stay in a band. Like you can, <laughs> if I ever leave, you'll never be able to do this. Job security. <laughs> the tour that McCabe left faced further problems for the remaining members of the band when opening act Massive Attack abruptly dropped out and some of the venues needed to be downsized due to the lower expected ticket sales. The Verve trudged through the rest of the tour and then broke up for the second time shortly after. This second breakup stuck, though. For most of the 2000s, Ashcroft focused on his previously abandoned solo career, releasing a string of moderately successful albums, on which only Verve drummer Peter Salisbury appears. However, none of them matched the critical and commercial success of the Verve's output. When asked, though, Ashcroft famously said you'd have a better chance of getting all four Beatles on stage again than you would the Verve. In 2007, though, Ashcroft learned that Salisbury had been in contact with McCabe with discussions of starting a new project. Ashcroft contacted McCabe shortly after, and the two reconciled. Ashcroft then contacted bassist Simon Jones and did the same. The four decided to reunite as the Verve, with it having been 10 years since the release of Urban Hymns. However, secondary guitarist Simon Tong was not asked to rejoin. The original four members announced their reunion and said there would be a tour and a new album. The band did play it safe, though, and refused to sign a multi-million dollar multi-album deal, instead committing to only one record just in case things turned sour again. It ended up being a good decision, which we'll get to in a bit. <laughs> Tickets for their first UK tour in years sold out in 20 minutes, and a second tour of larger venues in the UK sold out just as quickly. The band ended up touring globally with great success, with things going far smoother than they did on the Urban Hymns tour. Meanwhile, in the studio, the band embraced its old approach of recording songs by once again taking a ton of drugs and having extended jam sessions. These sessions resulted in the album Fourth. That's F-O-R-T-H, not F-O-U-R-T-H, even though it is their fourth record. This band is not above puns, people. <laughs> this album is where we find the song we're covering today, Valium Skies, but the first single from the record is called Love Is Noise. Love is Noise and the fourth album did well on the charts, but not nearly as well as Urban Hymns. The band didn't write any material that sounded like Bittersweet Symphony, so casual fans found little interest in the record. After finishing up touring duties in 2009, just over two years after the band reformed, it split up for a third, and as of now, final time. Let's rewind a bit here, though, and talk about the album Fourth and the song Valium Skies. <laughs> 
We hope you're enjoying this episode of Skipped on Shuffle. Right about now, in most podcasts, you'd be hearing an ad for something, uh, but we are trying to keep Skipped on Shuffle ad-free, and the way we're going to be able to do that is through Patreon. Please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash skippedonshuffle. Any donations go to support the costs associated with running this podcast. Before we get to talking about fourth, we think it's important to talk a little bit about Urban Hymns and Bittersweet Symphony and the impact that that had on the band because it's their biggest single. It's their most iconic song. One of the most iconic songs of like that decade. Yeah. I mean, as we as we talked about, though, it's not very representative of most of the music of the band. And some of that is the way that the song took form. So one of the reasons that Bittersweet Symphony stands out from the rest of the Verve's output is it's built upon an orchestral sampling of a Rolling Stone song. So let's walk through this how, is that, how that happened. Yeah. <laughs> so the Rolling Stones write The Last Time, which here's a quote from Keith Richards, where he basically says, we came up with The Last Time, which was basically readapting a traditional gospel song that had been sung by the staple singers. But luckily, the song itself goes back into the midst of time. So basically, I think he's sort of saying we kind of heard some similar things, used those, and wrote The Last Time. So The Last Time comes out as a single in 1965. At some point, a guy named Andrew Oldham has an orchestra and decides to do a version of it and cover the song. Richard Ashcroft hears that at some point in time, says, this is cool, I'd like to build a song on it. Let's run through how this progressed. So here's the Rolling Stones, the last time. Now, here's the Andrew Oldham Orchestra playing the last time. And finally, here's the Richard Ashcroft demo using the last time sample. So basically, this is just Richard Ashcroft playing the track on a loop and singing over it with some lyrics that he'd written that eventually becomes Bittersweet Symphony.
And here's the completed Bittersweet Symphony. So you can hear how the song progressed and came to be. However, as we mentioned before, this band has had some legal problems (laughs) and they had a lot with the song. So what happened was at some point they had agreed and paid whatever fees they needed to in order to sample the song. However, they did not check with the Rolling Stones manager who apparently also had owned the rights to everything that the Stones had recorded prior to 1970. So the Stones manager at the time, Alan Klein, was like, hey, that's my song, despite the fact that the Stones had lifted it, at least elements of it from somewhere else, and it had already been transformed into this orchestral version. And as you can kind of hear with the song, there's a whole bunch of writing that Richard Ashcroft brought to this. This is just kind of something that lies under the surface of the song and drives it along. But anyway... So Klein basically argues in court that he that Jagger and Richards are basically the songwriters because of this tiny sample that Richard Ashcroft uses throughout the song. The court ends up agreeing with Klein. Richard Ashcroft is forced to basically relinquish his rights as the songwriter of the song. So basically he doesn't even profit off the song and the song credits are actually changed to give credit to Mick Jagger and Keith Richards for writing the song all off of a six note sample. So, so all those times you hear bittersweet symphony play all the times that it appears in movie soundtracks, it's on the radio, it's being streamed on Spotify, all that for the past, what what is it? Almost 20 years, over 20 years, over 20 years of these plays, Richard Ashcroft is making no money off of this. This is the biggest song of his entire band's career. Not one cent. Actually, no, he did make some money. What did he make? He made $1,000. He was paid to to give up. I mean, mean, basically he had to do it, but I think it was basically, you know, here's, here's a thousand bucks. So you don't walk away empty handed. Cause that's probably our legal minimum of what we need to give you to. So the the story does have a, a relatively happy ending, which is that last year at some point, and I don't know what the legal details of this, but at last year at some point, uh, the the rights did pass on to to Richard Ashcroft. So from now on, anytime you hear Bittersweet Symphony, Richard Ashcroft is the sole songwriter, and he's getting the sole amount of royalties from that. Keith Richards and Mick Jagger, who are really desperate for cash, I don't know if you know, <laughs> they, they are no longer getting the cash for it. When they commented on it, they claimed that it was all lawyer stuff behind the scenes that they had nothing to basically yeah, I'm, no, I'm, no say, which I I, I, I believe. believe yeah. I'm, I'm sure Mick Jagger and Keith Richards are like, this is a great song. This doesn't sound anything like what we did. Fine. You know, whatever. We've got, we've got millions of dollars in private jets and all sorts of stuff. We don't care about making money from Bittersweet Symphony. But, you know, they didn't have any control over it. This, this guy, Klein, had all the control and he clearly was like, oh, the biggest song of the 90s? And I can make money off And it? I can make some money off that? Yeah, I'll take you to court over that. So, so yeah. So, I, I, so we think it's important because it kind of colors, obviously, an experience in the music industry. And when we think about how the band wrote songs, clearly they never wanted 
I, I would assume after you go through this experience that you're like, well, I'm never sampling another <laughs> thing ever. I'll never write that way again because I fear this happening. And I think that some of the reluctance, as we mentioned, that this album fourth ended up just being kind of a one-off experience because I'm sure having been through that experience has to color your perception of the music industry and how much you feel like you really want to be yeah, in, I mean, involved in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you kind of think to yourself like, okay, Bittersweet Symphony was this huge, huge song and we could try and replicate what we did with Bittersweet Symphony in a certain way and put it on this new record that we're putting out so that we can connect with those fans who maybe only know Bittersweet Symphony of which, let's be honest, there are a lot of people. But the verb was basically like, we, you know, we don't even want to touch the legal ramifications of what we went through with Bittersweet Symphony. So let's just not even bother. And let's just release an album of material that sounds like what we originally were doing back in the early 90s when they released their first album. Rather than this Rather, more commercial. Yeah. 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 They were just like, let's go back to our roots and just reject what we did with Bittersweet Symphony. Not because it wasn't an amazing song, but just because of the problems that came up legally for the band doing it. So we, we felt it was important to go over this to show one of the probably primary reasons why when you listen to fourth, you don't hear anything like bittersweet symphony, but you know, thankfully for, for fans like me, that wasn't a problem because this sounds just like what I imagine the verve sounds like when I think of them, which is drastically different than what most people think of because they only think of bittersweet symphony. Even though you knew she knew you was a As I mentioned when I was going over the history of the band, one one of their ways of doing things was to go into the studio and just get high as balls and write, you know, jam sessions, materials, and and then, you know, afterwards go through and figure out like the best bits and put it all together and make a song out of it. And that's predominantly what happens on fourth, which is really interesting because there is only really one Verve record that does that, which is 1993's A Storm in Heaven, their first record. And then their second record is, you know, a little bit more straight ahead alternative rock. The band was trying to come up with more solid structure, less psychedelic and more straight, you know, straightforward, like commercially viable tunes, uh, which is fine. You know, you can't, you can't just be on drugs all the time. You kind of have to, you know, express yourself in different ways. You got to get on the radio to buy yeah, more drugs. Yeah, to get more drugs. How are you going to afford the drugs if you don't get on the radio? So so the second record is very different from the first record. And then their third record, Urban Hymns, like we mentioned, is basically a Richard Ashcroft solo album that sort of evolved into a Verve album late in the day. So that album doesn't sound anything like any of the other ones. So really with fourth, with the band all being together, the four, the four original core members in the studio doing tons of drugs and just like writing this psychedelic weird music this is the first time since 1993 that we've had that so that's what makes fourth to me like such an interesting record and 
this this song we're going to talk about today, Valium Skies, is also really interesting because it is not one of those songs. So, you know, the band getting together and getting all tripped out on drugs and writing all these weird jam sessions or whatever, that is not how Valium Skies came to be. Valium Skies is much more like an urban hymn song where Richard Ashcroft wrote most of it on an acoustic guitar probably or a piano maybe and then brings it to the band and says let's make this into a verve song and that's what we get with Valium Skies you know on the on the record itself so this to me is such a perfect verve song because it sort of melds the two worlds together really, really well, in my opinion, where it's like, it's a Richard Ashcroft solo song with some, you know, good, but pretty sappy sentimental lyrics and, you know, a a, a pretty repetitive structure, but Nick McCabe gets involved and throws all this psychedelic, awesome guitar work on there. And then it just becomes this verve-esque song that I kind of feel like brings it together in like the best of both worlds. I mentioned at the top of the episode that I love urban hymns. I do. I just want to clarify. I do own the other albums and listen to them, but not with any regularity. So this one, I probably hadn't listened to in quite some time. And I was thinking about it in the context of this episode and thinking about not, not having known about the, the background of how they wrote the songs and everything. And this song still managed to stand out to me because if you throw on any of the Verve records and, and even Urban Hymns to some extent, because it gets a little like psychedelic, it's hard to figure out where songs begin or end unless you're kind of intently listening to the record. So a lot of times if I throw on anything from A Storm in Heaven, A Northern Soul, and even even this one, I, I lose track and I'm like, I'm, I'm three songs later suddenly. And I was like, I thought I was listening to this other one. That's because the drugs actually come through the speakers. <laughs> <laughs> I lose all sense of space and time. So for this, so for this one, the one, one of the things that makes this song stand out is there's actually some structure to it. There's these repetitive guitar notes. So you, you know, when the song starts and you know, the melody that you're supposed to follow, as opposed to some of the other trippy ones. So this this sounds like a song that you could that you could play as opposed to as we mentioned most of the McCabe things where you would have no idea how to, <laughs> how to do it. Um so it's a recognizable song and as Scott mentioned the lyrics help structure it too because it's repetitive and it's not, you know, trippy and outlandish stuff. It is a a basic love song. And tying it back to the drugs is basically the drug is love, kind of one, one, one of one of those type types of songs. If 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 you know what I mean, when where you're basically my 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 drug is love, and also drugs. <laughs> I need love for, for this, band. and I also need drugs. No, you know it's interesting because when I when I heard the lyrics, or well, actually, I'll, I'll be honest, when I first picked up the record because. I was so excited for this record. I never thought I'd get another Verve record. I thought they were broken up for good. It was done. And when I first grabbed the record and I saw that there was a song on there called Valium Skies, I was like, oh, that's going to be the one that's going to be like 20 minutes long of just like droned out psychedelic. Because, you know, Valium Skies, that sounds like a psychedelic song. And I was like totally surprised that it's not. It's actually one of the more straightforward, you know, verse, chorus, verse, chorus songs on on the record. And so I was like, okay, well then it's clearly about you know, drugs. But now, you know, I feel like now that I actually, when I sat down to intently listen to this song for this episode, because I'll be upfront, I, this is one of my top five favorite Verve songs. Like, I cannot get enough of this song. And I've listened to it so many times, but, you know, for these episodes, 
you listen differently. I mean, I know I think Jason could probably agree with this too. Is that you you don't really pay attention to the song when you're playing it. You're just enjoying it. And then when you listen to it for doing skip down shuffle episodes, you're like, you know, you got like your notes open. You're, you're and, teasing things apart a little yeah, bit more. And, yeah, and, you're, you're kind of you're kind of pulling back the curtain a little bit than maybe you would normally. So when I did that for this song, I came away with a, a, a different perspective on what the lyrics are about. I think that what Richard Ashcroft is saying here with this song, and we're going to get into the lyrics to, to explain this, but I think what he's saying here is that he's incredibly depressed. He's, an, he's, a, he's a depressed person. He has depression. And this woman that he's with, I don't know if it's his current wife or, or, or a former lover or whoever, this woman that he's with accepts that. And the song is basically him being about, you know, him talking about how much he loves that this woman accepts that he is a, a mentally unstable person. And and that's where the chorus comes in. So just, just, just so we can get over the chorus here. So it says, she's got all I need, the air I breathe. When it comes to my Valium skies, she doesn't mind if I cry. And I think that he's just basically saying, like, I love this woman because she accepts all of me. Even my depressive, I need to get fucked up on drugs all the time moods, you know, she's okay with all of that as well. Um, I don't know, I, I, but your interpretation of it being like a, a more sentimental, straightforward love song, I, that's how I first thought of it. But now that I listen to it a bunch, I'm starting to get a little bit different feel. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I think I think there is a little bit more depth to it than my <laughs> than my generalization of it. And yeah, it sounds as though he's describing a relationship he's in. And I think mentioning the depression thing, and thinking about the the opening lines, how do you keep yourself from folding? Seems like the whole world is losing. How do you stop yourself from giving in? Seems like the whole world is crying. Definitely sets up, here's where I'm at mentally. Yeah. And then sweeping in with the chorus, someone who's able to lift you out of that, hence skies and Valium and yeah. th those references. So that, yeah, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. And then I guess in turn, if we look at the next chorus it kind of complicates the situation where once he's been lifted up, now he's kind of able to think about his partner and the other person in this relationship and what his role might be in taking care of, of, of her. So he says, how do you stop your lover from crying? Even though you knew she knew you wasn't lying. How do you stop this world from imploding? Still know nothing with all these cards I'm holding. So it's like, I, I have this great love now and it's lifting me up, but how do I keep this from falling apart? Especially someone who, at least career-wise, has gone through a lot of things falling apart and imploding. Drugs. <laughs> He's basically just like, you know, I, yeah, you could, you could sort of say that this song, if you want to be cynical, you could say that the song is about how he has, you know, the, the line he says, I still know nothing with all these cards I'm holding. I, I, you know, I'm a giant rock star. I have one of the most successful singles of the past, you know, of the, the nineties decade, Te technically, technically, <laughs> technically, but he's not making any money off of it, but he's doing fine yeah, financially. Yeah, no. You know, he has, he has a legacy, you know, he has a, a beautiful wife. He has, you know, tons of cash. He's doing great. And he still is probably wants to do a lot of drugs. You know, he still is like, I still have a crazy addiction to drugs. I still have a lot of problems. You know, uh, clearly he has a, a lot of problems with like, uh, violent tendencies since him and McCabe are, you know, getting fist fights backstage. He, he has a lot of issues and he doesn't really know what to do about them. And so you could sort of cynically say that maybe the song is about how this is why he wants to do drugs. He's like, this is what gets me away from them. 
But I feel like the chorus tying it together makes it feel like he's like, you know, like I appreciate that this woman is here and is willing to go through this with me, even though it may not be something that she really wants to do, but she loves me and she wants to be there for me. So I think it's, it's, it is, it goes a lot deeper, I think, than most other Verve songs. I mean, I think Richard Ashcroft's lyric writing has been, has been very, I don't know what's a good word to use, but pedantic. I don't know. Like, like I feel like he, he, he sticks to like a basic kind of thing where he's like, the world is beautiful or love is great or drugs are awesome or music is amazing. You know, like I feel like those are his beats that he just hits over and Mm. over again. And this song, I feel like he kind of goes a little bit deeper than normal. Maybe it's just age, you know, he's older now. He's got a bunch of solo records under his belt. He's done it. He's been doing this for a long, long time. He's just gotten better as a, as a lyricist than maybe he was back in the early days of the verve. But I feel like this is now that I've examined this for this episode, I feel like I come away with with the fact that maybe Richard Ashcroft really spent a lot more time crafting this song than maybe he did some others. Even though musically they sound different, I think of the Verve a lot when I think of Muse, and maybe it's my relationship to that band as well. Where I, I have the the one album that's the super popular one that made them big, Absolution, and then I don't really listen to anything else. And I sort of feel the same way about the Verve, where I'm like, I know there's other music out there, and I've listened to it from time to time, and I do enjoy it. But I find myself just consistently sitting down and going to Urban Hymns because it's just great. And I thought about that with the Oasis episode we did on Roll It Over from Standing on the Shoulder of Giants where, oh, there's this other music out there and it's kind of weird and psychedelic and experimental. And I don't know if it's the age I'm at right now where I'm just like more open to listening to this kind of psychedelic space rocky kind of stuff. But I find myself sort of liking that a little bit more. I'm a little more open to it. I mean, I like 60s psychedelic stuff, but this 2000s British psychedelic is kind of its own thing. So I found myself a little bit more interested in that. And especially this record where I do like A Storm in Heaven and some of the earlier stuff. But I found this one to be, as you mentioned, like a a more grown up version of the band. Like, yeah, I feel like the lyrics are more interesting especially on stuff like valium skies i found myself really liking the the last song on this record appalachian springs uh just something something about it really grabs me and i don't know i just have to recommend to people you know if you like a band and really love one album that you find yourself consistently listening to over and over again at some point just push yourself to listen to one or two of the other albums and it might not be something that you really enjoy or like at first as i mentioned i more casually listen to the other records but having listened to this one consistently 
over you know the past week or two as we have prepared for this episode i find myself really liking this one i don't think it'll ever replace urban hymns because that's just kind of uh, you know up on a pedestal way 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 above <laughs> um but I, I i find myself throwing this one on a lot more frequently when i you know scroll through my music playlist you know some somehow i'm just like urban hymns are fourth now and that's <laughs> and that's you know totally totally different than just going to my usual go-to so i can't recommend enough you know listen to other things and it might not work at first and definitely with the verb i feel like it's taken me a while to open myself up to the other music that they've done i'm probably one of the very few people in the united states well not very few but the the statistically lower <laughs> amount of people in the United States who actually knew of the verve before bittersweet symphony came out. And I remember being a kid and hearing this is music. That was my first, uh, exposure to the band, their first single from their second record. And I think I was blown away by just how this, you know, Richard Ashcroft had written a song about the power of music, but the chorus basically is basically, him, you know, almost him saying, this is music. Like what you're listening to right now, the verve is music and everything else is shit. Like that's kind of the attitude that he has with that song. And as I mentioned in the Oasis episode, I'm a total sucker for, for that bigger than life attitude in, in rock bands where they're like, you know, we are the best band. We're writing the best music. All of the music is garbage compared to us. Like, I don't know what it is, but that really draws me in. I don't, I don't the know. The egomaniac yeah, in me loves I, it. I, I don't know. I don't know. It, it, it's funny. I just, I don't know what it is about it that really draws me in. But I remember as a kid, I, I, I loved it. And then when, when Urban Hymns came out, uh, after all that went down and Bittersweet Symphony was a huge hit. I love Bittersweet Symphony too. I mean, it's impossible not to love Bittersweet Symphony as far as I'm concerned. If you meet somebody and they say, I don't like that Bittersweet Symphony song. You walk away. You walk away. <laughs> you, you do not talk to that person. There's something about that song that just like, I don't know. It's like all of humanity can can unite. Like it's just everybody, metalheads, people who only listen to rap music, people who listen to country music probably like Bittersweet Symphony. I don't know, but um, yeah, so I was, I was so excited, uh, about the verb when I was a kid, but when, when urban hymns came out, it was 97. So I was 14 years old. Like I was a kid, you know, so I couldn't go to the shows. I couldn't afford to get tickets. I, you know, I had to get my, my mom to drive me to wherever to see them. So, and then, you know, truth be told, as we went over in the history, the urban hymns tour was a fucking disaster. So it's, I'm kind of glad I didn't go because that one have tainted, them for a bit for me or whatever you know if Nick McCabe wasn't there if I went to a show why then, am I hearing guitar and not yeah. seeing anyone playing guitar <laughs> yeah that would have that would have been really disorienting for me as a kid for sure so when I found out that the Verve was reuniting for this album fourth I was ecstatic I was like finally I will be able to see this band I had already crossed them off my list of bands that I wanted to see I I, I equated them to the Smiths I was like I will never see this band live it's never going to happen it's done and then they reunited and they and I finally got to see them and so when I think of the Verve and this album in particular I think about the show that I saw in New York City when they when they when they came around it was if I remember correctly it was before this album had come out because they played two songs from this record and I didn't know them at the show so I'm I'm 99% sure that that this album had leaked or been out in any capacity they were just touring to be like hey we're back and uh the set list was incredible they played 
not everything that I wanted to hear because they'd have to play for like three hours, but they played most of the big things that I wanted to hear, including one of my favorite songs, actually maybe even my favorite song by them, which is called Gravity Grave. And the bass player, Simon Jones, he started playing the opening line to Gravity Grave kind of as like a joke. And you could tell like it was totally unplanned. And then it was just like, oh, let's play that song. And so they played Gravity Grave and I was just like, oh my God. And, And if you look at the set list from that tour, they don't play Gravity Grave too often. So I was just like ecstatic that they played it and it was just a very special night. And I don't know where I put it on my list of the best concerts that I've been to, but you know, it'd probably be in like the top 20, uh, maybe in the top 10. I don't know. I'd have to like really think about it, but, but it was such a great show. It was so solidifying for me. I don't know. It was like, I'd been waiting for the moment, you know, and you can probably relate to this is, is sometimes you're waiting for that show and you're hoping it's going to be so great. And then it's not, you know, or maybe it's not bad, but it just doesn't live up to your expectation. This show was not that it went beyond my expectations. I went in pumped and left even more impressed than I was, than I would have been if they had just given me the show that I was expecting to get. So I'll always remember that one show. And I hope, you know, Back in my head, I hope that someday they're going to reunite again and they're going to do another tour, maybe even another record. But I don't know, maybe not. And he's got that bittersweet symphony money now after <laughs> yeah. after twenty plus years. So now it's just like I don't, I don't have to do anything. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Maybe that's not going to happen. Maybe it's just never going to happen again. But uh, I'll always have that one show, and I can always hope that maybe they'll do something again. I'll be able to see them again, you know, and and you know maybe even get that second, you know, that that fifth record. But if not, I'll always have this record fourth and the show that I saw in New York, and and I, I'll I'll be happy with just that. But please do more. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of Skipped on Shuffle. Please visit our website at www.skippedonshuffle.com for more news about other episodes and our upcoming schedule. We are also on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Please visit skippedonshuffle.com for links to all of our social media pages.